Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. And we're going to spend some time later in the show talking about some nonfiction uh, work he's done, uh, a virtual reality, the exploration of cyberspace. That sounds pretty interesting. But I want to focus tonight on two particular books, one, The Queen of Washington, and the other, The Shenandoah Spy. But before we get into that, then, Mr. Hammett, um, tell us a little bit about what got you to your interest in um, the Confederate War, in particular, spies female spies in the Confederate War. What got your attention, and why did you decide to focus on that among the hundreds of other things you do? Uh, well, uh, Michael, and if I have to call you Michael, you have to call me Francis. Okay, uh, sounds great. That's, that's fair. Okay. Uh, in 1981 and 1982, I worked uh, as a contract writer for the Encyclopedia Britannica, and my particular mm-hmm. subject area was intelligence and spy biographies and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, Belle Boyd was one of them. And when I started doing the research on her, I said, boy, this is really a great story. I've got to do more with this than just a few hundred words, you know, for a little article in the Britannica. And so I sort of put it away. And when I got done with the Britannica work, I tried to do a screenplay, but I hadn't done enough research, and the screenplay wasn't very good, and it never went anywhere. And uh, then I went into, you know, doing all of these other things, Uh, you know, uh, you, you find that impressive, but most writers will tell you that this is just making a living. You take the work that's available. And, okay, okay. Yeah, well, you know, uh, trade magazines were my livelihood all, all through the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, Starting in about 1998, I started getting serious about this book. I started doing research for it, and I started writing The Shenandoah Spy in 2002. I published one version of it in 2006. On Amazon Shorts, brought out the uh, trade paperback that's available today, which is also an ebook, uh, in 2008, and then I followed up with the Queen of Washington. But these are parts of a much larger narrative covering the entire Confederate Secret Service because I found out a couple of things about the Confederate Secret Service. Not much is known about it because all of the records got burned on April 2nd, 1865, when the Confederate government fled Richmond. Mm-hmm. That was that was the start of a fire that destroyed about a third of the city. Uh, there are a few records in the official records that were salvaged, uh, were bought from uh, a Confederate operative named Jake Thompson, who was operating out of Canada. They were sold several years later, and there's enough indications here and there, biographies and so forth. And they had a big intelligence operation in Britain and France, and they left some records there, too. And Bell Boyd herself left a book, which was ghostwritten for her, and mm-hmm. Rose Greenhow also left a book, which was ghostwritten for her. These were basically Confederate propaganda pieces, but there's enough truth 
there that I could start to assemble a framework of facts on which to hand you know, to hang what I thought would be a pretty interesting story. Uh, you know, but at the same time, I thought, well, you know, there's a whole lot of things that you never learn about the Civil War in high school or college because you get these survey courses, <clears throat> excuse me, and they just sort of hit the highlights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that I, I sort of got interested in, uh, which will be of interest to you, I think, in your audience, is the position of uh, African Americans at that time. It wasn't all uh, that dire for some of them. I mean, there were gradations of of slavery, and there were also an awful lot of them that were getting free one way or another. Uh, One of the things that happened, you know, in the Upper South, in Virginia particularly, was that a lot of uh, people would inherit slaves and set them free. Mm Mm-hmm. Or they would permit a slave to buy its freedom, you know, his or her freedom over time. And that was common throughout the South because basically it was a commercial transaction. And, you know, people didn't, they they weren't holding slaves because they were mean. They were holding slaves because they were assets. You know, and, you know, that sounds a little cold, but basically that was the dynamic. And the upkeep of slaves was also a factor. One of the reasons that these, uh, people who inherited slaves were setting them free was that they didn't want to maintain them. Plain and simple. They didn't want to support them. Let me ask you this before you go on, because you're on a roll. I really don't want to interrupt you, but just so the audience is not shocked, or I guess even better stated, outraged, it's not as if you are implying that slavery wasn't as bad as, you know, the history books tell us. It was simply a business transaction, not a matter of inhumanity toward a fellow human being. That's not what you're saying at this point, and I just want to make that clear. I don't want to speak for you, but obviously you're going to elaborate on it. But the one question I do want to pose when you say they weren't holding slaves because they were mean people, they were simply assets, doesn't that seem to go hand in hand? I mean, to I mean, isn't it almost like saying, well, these guys out here selling drugs are not really bad people. They just see drugs as a financial asset. Well, they do, but they're still doing something fairly evil. You, yes. you see, which is synonymous with holding a fellow human being as a slave. Well, yeah, uh, that's also evil. But, uh, you know, the thing was that the entire institution was already going away on a worldwide basis. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay. that's the other thing that I I find interesting. And, yeah, it's con- it's counterintuitive to the traditional narrative about all of this. Yeah, great, you point, know. great point. Let's do this. Um, you talked initially about this um, Confederate spy ring or spy agency. Talk a little bit more about that. When we talk about this whole Confederate spy thing going on, are we talking about some kind of ad hoc group or are we talking about some sophisticated agency? Well, uh, it was an amazingly sophisticated agency considering what they started with. And uh, to that, I credit a little bit of uh, informal assistance from uh, from the British government mm. uh, and the French. Okay. Uh, I think that the uh, Confederate government, uh, you know, which was basically a commercial operation at its heart and was basically more or less designed to fail, uh, you know, I, I think it was a try by the French and the British governments, you know, going back to about 1830 or so, to split the country in two. They wanted back into the North American continent. They were a little embarrassed to have lost it so easily. Uh, they saw the potential of America, and they saw that in about 50 years that uh, we would become a great power, just like they would. 
and they wanted to prevent that. And they tried very hard to do that. Uh, you know, they were meddling in Texas uh, with the Texas annexation. Uh, mm-hmm. They meddled in California. Uh, there were all sorts of things going on, you know, in Mexico. And one of the themes of uh, uh, the Queen of Washington. Uh, have you had a chance to read the book, by the way? I have not. In fact, when I spoke to Leslie Gist, I said I wish I had. But as a full-time homicide trial lawyer, if I can read a newspaper, that's an advantage. That's an incredible accomplishment on my part. But I am familiar with both books, Queen of Washington and Shenandoah. Okay, well, I haven't well, the read of, either one. Queen no. of Washington actually starts in 1850 during the Manifest uh, Destiny era. And it's Robert Greenhow and Rose Greenhow in San Francisco and dealing with a thing called the Lehman Tour land claims, Mm -hmm. which the federal district court later called the most audacious fraud in history. Uh, (laughs) This Frenchman named Lehman Tour claimed to have land grants from the previous uh, Mexican government for enormous tracts of land and that wasn't the really big issue. The really big issue was that one of the smaller tracks was half the city of San Francisco, as we know it today. Now, and, let me ask, in, in talking about the Queen of Washington as well as the Shenandoah Spy, is it true that these are not nonfiction books but fiction books based, fact-based? Is that a good way to describe them both? Yeah, they're, they're novels. Uh, a lot of it is made up entirely, out okay. of my own imagination. Uh, but obviously, the, back the you're including actors who actually existed. Yeah, but there, there were Lehman Tour land claims. I had to do a lot of research on Lehman Tour and then on Rose and on the relationship between Rose uh, Greenhow and Jose Lehman Tour. And I came to some conclusions, which I'm sure that her descendants won't care much for. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but you know, basically, Rose was a very high-powered uh, political operative in Washington. She couldn't mm-hmm. vote, but she could get you a job. Okay. She could also get you a spouse. Wow. Uh, she, okay. She, she could arrange okay. parties. It was mm-hmm. an era of political ma- marriages. This was a system established by uh, Dolly Madison uh, okay. for the society in Washington, and Rose simply in, uh, was a Dolly Madison protege who took over. And during the Buchanan administration, she literally was the queen of Washington. She, uh, you know was reputed to be Buchanan's lover, which was highly unlikely since he was gay. Uh, okay. She was involved with Senator Henry Wilson, the chairman of the Senate Military Committee in the first part of the Civil War. His love letters to her are in the National Archives. Uh, she was also involved with a Union Provost Marshal, uh, you know, who she was trying to formulate a plan to have the Confederates capture Washington, D.C., with uh, what she called flying artillery and a brigade of cavalry here and a brigade of cavalry there. I doubt if the plan would have worked, but she was working on it at the time that Alan Pinkerton arrested her. Okay, okay. Uh, This is all a verified fact. But in terms of who said what to whom and so forth, well, that i got to confess I made up because nobody kept a record of that kind of thing. Of course. Yeah, but Rose Greenhow left a lot of letters that, sort of give us an indication of what her procedure was, and you see that she was operating in a quasi-intelligence or agent of influence capacity as early as uh, the uh, filibuster expedition, first filibuster expedition to Cuba. She may have helped finance that. Okay. Um, and that was to bring Cuba into the Union as a slave state, which would not have been a good thing. And, you know, everybody thought that this was madness, but they kept trying to do it. She was a protege of John C. Calhoun, you know, who was, uh, 
you know, definitely in favor of slavery. Uh, she was possibly a mistress. She certainly was like a daughter to him in some respects. She nursed him on his deathbed. And uh, that was in what became the old Capitol Prison, which the building was originally her aunt's boarding house where she came to Washington as a young girl. But, you know, uh, if you read her book, you'll, you you get a very strong impression that Rose just simply did not like black people. You know, and she had cause for that. Her father had been murdered by one. His, mm. By his personal servant. You you say when you when you're doing this kind of novelistic writing, you have to go beyond the stated facts, and you have to come up with a way to sort of explain why people do what they do, not to approve mm-hmm. of it, but to explain it. And so, so, you know, you you said quite a bit, and I want to just interject a few points. The first thing I want to do is. Anybody who might be interested in getting either of these books or both of these books, the Queen of Washington, the Shenandoah Spy, how can they get them? That's my first question. Uh, quick and easiest way is Amazon.com. Okay. Uh, the Queen of Washington is only available in hardbound right now. Uh, Shenandoah Spy is available in trade paperback for twenty two fifty, or as an e-book currently for another few days. We had a sale going on because of Bell Boyd's birthday. It's like $3.99. Okay, sounds great, sounds great. Uh, well, Let I'll me, tell you the curious thing. We're talking thing. about the Confederacy, and obviously the, the root of all that is slavery. Let's talk a little bit about some misconceptions people might have about slavery. Um, clearly, not every white person in America at the time enslaved black people, and clearly not every black person in America at the time was enslaved. Talk a little bit about that. Well, uh you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, in the book, the Queen of Washington upset Rose Greenhow is the fact that uh, black people are moving up socially in Washington, D.C., because they've taken over certain businesses entirely. You can't mm-hmm. find a white barber in Washington, D.C. And her now, what maker, time period are we talking about? Huh? We're, t- we're talking about during the... period are talking about? Um, 1700, 1800? 1850. Okay, so you okay. So you're talking about shortly before the Civil War. Okay, Shortly before the Civil War, slavery was outlawed in the District of Columbia. So okay. she couldn't she couldn't have slaves, and she didn't want to hire uh, free black women because she thought of them as being uh, a little too proud. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I believe the phrase is uppity, as my roommate over yes, here just yes, okay. shouted in. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the thing is that there are contemporary accounts that I found in research of a British reporter... Uh, named William Howard Russell did a book just before the war called North and South in which he toured the country. And one of the things he noticed in Washington, D.C. was how on Sunday mornings all of the black women would come out in their very fancy dresses and just sort of uh, promenade mm-hmm. uh, on mm-hmm. their way to church and how this upset some uh, you know, uh, some white people. And I thought, well, I can use that. Certainly Rose would be somebody who would be upset by this. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was also a big influx of Irish uh, girls looking for work uh, at that time because of the famine. Uh, So uh, becoming a servant became a white person's occupation in Washington. But in Richmond, you couldn't find a white servant because that was a black person's occupation. Okay, okay. Okay, and we're not talking about slave or free. We're talking yeah. about, you know, who did that kind of work. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in Washington, you could not find 
a white barber because the blacks had entirely taken it over and they were making a lot of money. And that allowed them to buy property and to gain thereby some political power. Uh, even though they had no vote, they had no rights, they had nothing else. If you have money, you have power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see? And the premier dressmaker in Washington, D.C., was Elizabeth Keckley, who was from St. Louis, who was a former slave who had brought, bought her own freedom, who had the best dresses in town, the most fashionable dresses in town, because she had spies in Paris, meaning mm-hmm. her the latest designs. You know, bringing them over by courier by by steamship, and uh, the, Elizabeth Keckley is a real person. And okay. She left a book. She left a book too. She was a good friend of Mary Todd uh, Lincoln's, and she wrote a book about that. She was also a dress designer used by Varnia Davis, and everybody went to her for their designs. So race didn't really matter when it came to fashion. Wow, this is some powerful stuff, and I'm hoping the folks who are listening definitely go out and get the book. Um, we have on the line author extraordinaire, from what you can hear, Francis Hammond, author of The Queen of Washington, also The Shenandoah Spy. And i got to tell you, I mean, I've done a little bit of research during my lifetime into slavery here in America, and some of the stuff you're sharing with me, i got to tell you, is eye-opening. I really appreciate you sharing this because I'm doing this, doing this interview here, but I'm actually growing from it. Let me do this because i got a million questions, but I know we don't have all night. In fact, I have to wrap things up by 9 p.m. Uh, you did spend some time earlier talking about Rose Greenout. Talk a little more about Belle um, Boyd uh, and, and okay. her role in the whole Confederate spy ring. Well, Bell Bell sort of fell into the business accidentally. Now, Bell was not uh, a traitor to the United States. Bell was a patriot for the state of Virginia. This was her native country, as far as she was concerned. Okay. Well, uh, she was a 17-year-old girl, society debutante, who had been presented in Washington. And, you know, a lot of these society women got into the spying business. Rose Greenhow had an entire ring comprised primarily of uh, society women. Uh, before she was arrested. But Bell was like uh, in her hometown, and the Union invades. Troops from Pennsylvania, militia troops, not even well-trained regular Army troops. And they're very abusive, uh, you know, uh, to the people. And, uh, you know, the abuse doesn't stop uh, at the color line. They're also abusive to the, uh, the various servants and so forth. So everybody who lives there is sort of ticked off at them. On July 4th, 1861, there was a drunken squad of Union soldiers who invaded Bell's home, abused her mother. Bell shot one of them dead. She was tried, you know, or given a hearing. Why did you do this? Well, you know, the man pushed my mother, and, you know, I was in fear of my life, and, you know, I had this pistol. And the colonel in charge of the Pennsylvania Regiment was a lawyer from Philadelphia, by the way, named Mm, David Burney. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had raised that regiment himself. He had paid for all the uniforms and so forth, and he felt embarrassed by this. He said, yeah, you're right. It was justifiable homicide. You're free to go. Mm. At this point, she decides, well, I've got to do something to get these terrible people out of my hometown. So she's a friend of Turner Ashby, the guy who founded the Mountain Rangers, which has now turned into the 7th Virginia Cavalry. And she goes to him, she asks for a job, he puts her off, she keeps asking, she's very persistent. She's also very tall, she's a big, strong girl, she can ride a horse's 
well or better than most men, and she also knows how to use the firearm. No, it wasn't an accident. She shot the guy dead. She aimed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, She meant to do it. I think that would make a great movie, but go on. Well, as a matter of fact, we have uh, we are working on the movie right now. We've just made that right. Yeah, I can see why. I can certainly see why. Well, we just made an offer to a major star to take the lead role, but I can't say who. Okay, okay. Well, make sure I get a front row seat when uh, during your opening uh, presentation. Uh, Uh, Go on, because this is absolutely fascinating. I got like six, seven pages of notes just sitting here listening to you. Please continue. Well, okay. Uh, She, you know, gets caught because she's very clumsy. She's not trained at all. She's uh, Mm -hmm. sending out letters in her own handwriting, you know, and texting clear and so forth. She doesn't know how to do code yet. She doesn't Mm -hmm. know how to do any of this other stuff. And they, you know, pull her in and they say, naughty, naughty little girl, don't do this again. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they they finally take her in hand. She goes to Front Royal where her aunt and uncle own a hotel. They've leased the building, but they own the, uh, the hotel operation. And when they leave for Richmond, she and her cousin, Alice Stewart, are placed in charge of the hotel. The hotel, because union officers are a little bit lazy, is right across from the train station. And I've actually been to Front Royal. The building is literally walking distance from the train station even to this day. Uh, And the Union Army headquarters is there. And she gets involved with a Union Army staff captain named Daniel Kiley. And Daniel Kiley is not there because he believes in the Union. Daniel Kiley is a hired hand uh, who had been with the Papal Guard in uh, Rome. He and a fellow named Miles Kehoe, they both came over, recruited by the Archbishop of New York, promised commissions, promised citizenship, because the North was desperate for any kind of competent officer. Well, uh, it's fairly obvious from Bell's book that they had a pretty torrid affair and that uh, Kylie gave her information. And she uses this information to find out when there's a important meeting, a staff meeting. She discovers there's a plan to trap Jackson's army. She rides 15 miles in the middle of the night to find Turner Ashby, where she knows he's going to be, gives him the information, rides 15 miles back, slips into bed, is not detected, and stays in place. And this is the same thing that Mary Elizabeth Bowser was doing as a spy on the other mm-hmm. side, uh, you know, since you want to connect it to that. She was a servant in uh, the uh, Confederate White House for uh, Jefferson and Varnia Davis. As a matter of fact, let's do this. I certainly want to go into detail about Mary Elizabeth Bowser, but I appreciate what you mentioned in regard to Belle Boyd and Rose Greenow. Um, In your research of both of these individuals, did you find or conclude that they promoted and supported and advocated for slavery per se, or that these were just women who happened to be from the South who thought that they needed to protect states' rights? Well, uh, basically in Bell's case, it was a matter of being for for Virginia. And she and her personal servant, who was uh, probably also her number one field agent, Eliza Corsi, they were friends mm-hmm. all of their lives. Uh, After the war, when Belle became a famous actress, she used to visit Eliza in Virginia. She always brought presents for the children. She was always walking with open arms. They were great friends. So Mm -hmm. there's a relationship that transcended the racial barrier. Rose, on the other hand, was pretty hateful, and uh, she she was a disciple of John C. Calhoun's, and she wanted slavery maintained at all costs. 
and she was a powerful political operative. She was a close friend of Roger Taney, the guy who formulated the Dred Scott uh, decision, Supreme mm-hmm. Court Chief Justice. And, you know, she was of that party, you know. But uh, the, the guy that was behind all of this, you know, it seems to have been Judah P. Benjamin. Okay. Uh, he was the Confederate Secretary of State. At first he was the Attorney General, and, you know, and he was a Jew. And a lot of mm-hmm. people didn't like that he was a Jew and he was the Attorney General. So Jefferson Davis made him the Secretary of War. And then he covered for Davis on a shortage that people demanded he be fired because uh, some powder was not provided for a battle. Well, there was mm-hmm. no powder to provide, but that would have been a terribly damaging political thing to admit for Davis. So he got fired as Secretary of War and then made Secretary of State. But throughout all of this, he was head of the Confederate Secret Service, which is interesting. Which is interesting. Because in the early part of the Queen of Washington, and this is also true, he's in. this is where he meets Robert Greenhow, at least in the book. He is Mm -hmm. associate law counsel for the California Land Commission. Mm -hmm. People are going to decide all these land claims. This is a job that pays $1,500 a year. His normal fee was 25000 back then. Oh, okay. He was the best-known international lawyer in the world. What was he doing taking that job? Why mm-hmm. was he there? There had to be another reason. Okay. And I get into all of that in the context of the book. But he leaves that to become the junior senator, United States senator from Louisiana along with his uh, law partner, John Slidell, uh, who wasn't from Louisiana, was basically a Tammany Hall guy that got uh, kicked out of New York because he was a big Mason. And, you know, we get into Freemasonry here also as a background on this. You, You sort of get all of these various layers and elements going back and forth when you get around the Civil War period, the secret societies, uh, you know, there were there were two Mexican Masonic lodges during the uh, the Mexican War or, and the the Texas annexation. That's interesting. I never heard anything like that before. It, it took a, it took a bit of digging. One was called the Escada. One one of them was called the Escadas for the Scottish Rite, and the other one was called the Yorkinos for the York Rite. Now, I've never been a Mason, and all I know about it is what I've been able to dig up and research. But I, I found that extremely interesting because the Masons were also a element of the British Intelligence Service. Mm-hmm. And they use Masonic code sometimes. Those of you who have just tuned in to the Disc of Freedom normally hosted by Leslie Gist, you're listening to an author by the name of Francis Hammett, who has done a lot of great work right now. We're talking about two of his works, The Queen of Washington and The Shenandoah Spy. You will be getting, and if you have been listening, you have gotten an education about not only a few of the figures involved in the Confederate spy ring, but also um, a woman who was on the other side, the Union side, in particular Mary Elizabeth Bowser. And, uh, Francis, just, you, you did start talking about Mary Elizabeth Bowser. Talk a little bit more about uh, her background in particular, her uh, well, education, whether or not well, she, she was married, she, and understand she spent some time in Philadelphia. Talk a little bit more about her. Okay, well, she was a you know, basically recruited even before the war. Uh, She was part of the Underground Railroad. Elizabeth Lou, white woman in Richmond, 
mm-hmm. later known as Crazy Bet because everybody thought she was nuts and you know she was pro union, but she was so open and obvious about it that uh, everybody figured that she she was just harmless. Mm-hmm. Well, she was anything but. She had a big spy ring, with which we don't know much because uh, she didn't trust people to keep her sources uh, safe. She turned over her records to the government after the war. Then she asked for them back, and then she burned them to protect people. Well, Judah, okay. And this okay. is the same reason Judah Benjamin burned his records, because he had a big network in the, of sympathizers in the North that he wanted to protect. Yeah, okay. I mean, this this was just standard courtesy of spymaster to spymaster. But yeah. Mary Elizabeth Bowser was a uh, young black woman who Elizabeth Lou took under her wing, uh, basically freed her, sent her to Philadelphia where she was taught to read and write and a few other things, and then brought her back to Richmond when the war broke out and placed her as a servant in the Confederate White House. Mm-hmm. Now, if they'd known she could read, they never would have let her within 100 yards of the place. Okay. And, and what she was able to do was she was able to read the presidential correspondence which, by the way, probably didn't involve anything having to do with the Confederate Secret Service, because Judah Benjamin kept all of that separate to himself. He had a separate office in the Exchange Building in Richmond for for handling that, aside from the the Department of State. And, you know, he was very tight about all of this. Most of the correspondence that Benjamin received, he burned on the spot. He said, I can remember it. And he would just set fire to it, you know? mm. uh, and he he kept his uh, staff very close too. His number uh, one guy was his brother-in-law Julian, who uh, was in the book in a couple of places, and who I made his code clerk. I figured he had to have one. It was probably Julian as much as anybody else, but I do not know that for a fact. Yeah. Now here here's the thing that will be of interest to your audience. Julian was a Creole. And Benjamin, mm. was, and Benjamin was married to a Creole. Okay. And, and his wife, Natalie, was, uh, uh, shall we say, a notorious sexual adventuress uh, yeah, who, who had publicly humiliated him in Washington and then fled to Paris from which she never returned. And he continued to visit her once a year for about a month and come back. And, and he just accepted his status and accepted that was her way. And he stayed, you know, in the family because the family was very powerful politically. But this is one of the things that confuses me about the Civil War. At the time of the Civil War, the Creoles were not black people. They only became mm-hmm. black people later. Okay. Now, seriously, about 1890. When, right. they, yep. when, when they created the Jim Crow laws, that's mm-hmm. when the Creole, because uh, General Beauregard, he was a Creole. Yes. Yep. He was a railroad president and all this other thing. You know, so... I don't think there was that much racial animus at the beginning of the Civil War. People wanted slavery gone, mm-hmm. and and uh, slaveholders most of all, some of them. John uh, C. Randolph, who was a Virginia state legislator, famously said that if the slave doesn't run away from his master, the master will have to run away from the slave because they're too expensive to keep. Now, how do you interpret that from a practical standpoint? Let's say things had changed historically and the South won the Civil War. I mean, isn't it reasonable to believe that they would have maintained slavery forever if they could? I mean, what what conclusion do you draw from your research? Well, uh, I think I think that the Lower South would have kept it going for a good long time, but it, it was already doomed. Look what happened mm-hmm. to slavery in other places. 
The English abolished it in about the 1830s. And you know how they did okay. it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they issued bonds and they bought all the slaves and freed them. And then they paid okay. all the bond, bonds with the tax revenue produced by the goods that the slaves made as free people. Mm-hmm. The same thing was done in the Dutch East Indies. Now, in Jamaica, the economy temporarily collapsed because nobody gave the slaves a word that they were really free now. And, you know, the passive resistance to slaves had shown historically, you know, was still there for a number of years. And then they finally got the idea, well, hey, it's all on us now. We better do something. And then Jamaica started to come back, too. But slavery didn't make any sense economically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, okay, I, I'm just a numbers guy, you know. You know, I also started a master's in business at one time in my life, and I've done okay. the accounting courses and so forth. And if you're just a cold, hard-hearted businessman, a Yankee, as they call them down south, you, mm-hmm. you look at slavery and say, why would I invest in this? You know, short-term, yeah, it works great. Short-term, you get free labor. Long-term, mm-hmm. you have to support those people in their old age. You have to take care of them when they're sick. And, you know, there are famous accounts about the uh, mistress of the plantation nursing uh, you know, sick or dying slave in the slave quarters. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, people are people. and Yeah, I mean, I've got to concede. I mean, to the extent that I consider myself this pro-black activist, I'd like to think that, you know, it was a situation where uh, every so-called slave master would have held these people for as long as he or she could have. I mean, but it's like you say, I mean, to the extent that you own property, you have to maintain that property, and it costs money to maintain that property, so I could certainly understand that point. Uh, earlier, earlier in the show, I did um, ask, and we never really got into it, in terms of the demographics, um, looking at slavery at around the 1850s or shortly before the Civil War, in the South, what percentage of the white population would you say enslaved black folks, and what percentage of black folks would you say were enslaved? Because, you know, we tend to believe that every white person in the South during this time enslaved black folks, but nothing could be further from the truth. No, it was about 3%. Yeah, uh, 3%. That's interesting because I heard anywhere from 2% to 5%. So your 3% is about right. Now, that's in terms of the white population uh, yeah. enslaving black folks. What percentage of black folks, uh, in terms of your research, uh, did you conclude were actually enslaved? Because obviously it was not 100%. No, it was 80 to 90. And, uh, by the way, some of the free black owned slaves. You know, know, that's an interesting thing because I've heard quite a bit about that. Um, To the extent that there were some, and obviously there were some black folks who owned slaves, I I couldn't really understand how that could possibly be because generally during slavery, black people were not permitted to engage in contracts. So if you well, can't well, engage well, in contract, you can't sign a contract. How could you own property? No, you you couldn't you couldn't sign a contract as a slave. If you were okay, a free person, but, if you were a free person of a co- of color, you had the same you know basic contract rights as anybody else. There and I, I certainly understand that from a theoretical legal standpoint. But when you look at you alluded to Roger Taney and the Dred Scott decision. I mean, the rationale from the Supreme Court is that blacks slave or free were not citizens of the United States and therefore had no right. Yeah, but but we had all sorts of people who weren't citizens of the United States who owned property here. Okay. I mean, come, come to that, Judah Benjamin may have never been a citizen of the United States. Yeah, I just didn't see how it jived with what Taney said, but 
in terms of the free blacks who did own um, enslaved folks, what percentage well, well, of those well, black folks well, would you Michael, say? Michael, I, I hate to be pointing this out to such an able lawyer as yourself, but the Taney decision was a matter of federal law, which would have to filter down, and these contract provisions were a matter of state law. Well, that's absolutely true. However, I mean, even today, um, for example, I'm a attorney from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, but we certainly cite federal law in our state arguments if the federal law is consistent with the argument that we're trying to make. So even though from a practical standpoint, if I'm in Pennsylvania, I'm citing Pennsylvania Supreme Court law, but clearly Pennsylvania attorneys do refer to U.S. Supreme Court decisions, even if they're not directly binding. Yeah, but Dred Scott was one, 1854? 1857. 1857. And there was yeah. a panic in uh, 1857, financial panic, probably as a result of Dred Scott? Good point. Uh, Good point. And uh, the war started when? Not that, 1861. Yeah, 1861 formally, but they were beating the drum for it in 1859, and actually the start of the war was John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, that would take me somewhere else at some point, based on your knowledge. I'd like to talk to you about that, but again, we don't have a whole bunch of time. I look at the clock now. It's about 841. I want to turn it over to you so that you can share with us what you think are the important points that you were making in both of those books, The Queen of Washington and Shenandoah Spy. But before we get into the particulars, let me just quickly jump back to uh, Mary Elizabeth Bowser. Um, how effective was the work of Mary Elizabeth Bowser? Well, it depends on what kind of intelligence was wanted. On political stuff, it was probably first rate. But I don't think she, that Jefferson Davis had that much access to military stuff because his own generals didn't consult him and found him a nuisance. And on intelligence stuff, Judah Benjamin kept all of that stuff to himself. By the way, okay. Judah, okay. Judah Benjamin never forswore his British citizenship in, in his life. I found this in a 1907 biography of him. He was always a British subject, even when he was a oh. senator from, from Louisiana. Okay. Okay. Before I, we get I, back I find to that Bowser, let me ask the similar question regarding Bell Boyd and Rose Greenow. How effective were they? Uh, Bell Boyd was much more effective than the, her contemporaries gave her uh, credit for. They, she was the first woman in American history to be commissioned an army officer. They made her a captain of scouts because of that front royal operation in September of 1862, and she may have risen as high in the ranks as the lieutenant colonel. There were several uh, female spies, aside from her and Rose. There was also uh, Antonia Ford, who helped capture a Union uh, Brigadier General uh, for John Singleton Mosby in March of 63. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bell worked uh, with, and Antonia both worked with Jeb Stewart, uh, you know, and Mosby, uh, both in the upper part of Virginia. Then there was a always very interesting... Uh, Loretta Janetta Velasco. I'm not sure what that was, Francis, but go on. Okay, well, she was a double agent. She uh, was a southern agent who actually went to work for Lafayette Baker in the uh, Secret Service as a spy for him on the South and uh, was also involved with Baker. Baker was this very uptight uh, guy. He was uh, a teetotaler. He didn't like sex all that much, but when it came to her, he liked it a lot. Oh. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, I, I'm hearing something in the background, Prince. I'm not sure what it was, but let me do this. I understand that we do have a caller, and this is the Gist of Freedom, normally hosted by Leslie Gist. And when we have guests like you, Francis, great guests providing powerful information, we take calls from folks all across the country. So I understand we do have somebody calling in from area code 510. Is that person available on the line? No, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Okay. Um, well, if the person wants to call back, you're welcome to. We have on the line great author, uh, great historian, Francis Hammett, uh, author of a number of books. We're talking now about the Queen of Washington. We're talking about the Shenandoah Spy. Um, you can get both books, as he indicated earlier, at Amazon.com, uh, and I would suggest that you do. Um, fascinating subject. Um, I'm sorry, Francis, you were making a point, but I thought we had a caller. Please continue. Uh, well, uh, there were... You know, these were the female spies. Now, the interesting thing about Bell and about Rose is that they were both sent to England. And my narrative shifts after the Mosby thing to England because there was a big, extensive uh, Secret Service operation there known as the Confederate Navy. Mm -hmm. And they were both involved with that. And okay, okay. As the, and the Confederate Navy was probably the most successful covert operation of the era. The, the British basically funded a force to destroy the Union commercial fleet, which it did, and they got back the carrying trade for 40 years as a result. They had been losing it. This was one of their major, major motivations for mixing into the war. Mm -hmm. But they were desperately afraid that it would lead to an actual declared war. And at the end of the war, if you look at Lord Lyons' correspondence with the Home Office there, uh, with Palmerson and Russell, his biggest fear is that we've got a half-million-man army, the largest in the world, and once we've settled the war between ourselves, we're just going to turn north and march into Canada and take that away from the British. You have been providing a wealth of information, Francis, and this stuff is just rolling off your tongue like you've known it forever. Let me ask you, in your research about this Confederate spy ring or about Mary Elizabeth Bowser, anything relative to this topic, what were you shocked to find? Was there anything in particular that made you say, wow, I had no idea? Anything like that come across during your research? Uh, well, Judah Benjamin uh, being a probable British agent. Okay, okay. Because if you if you look at his conduct throughout, it, it's consistent. I don't have any real proof of that, but if you look at uh, his background and his biography, it's the only thing that explains some of the things he did, like take that mm -hmm. job in San Francisco. He had to be, he had to be working on a totally separate agenda than just being an entrepreneur with a law practice. You know, the other interesting thing about Benjamin is that he was a Lincoln law partner before the mm -hmm. war. Okay. Uh, Lincoln was a railroad lawyer, right? So it was Benjamin. They had both ends of the Illinois Central Railroad between them. It was coming down the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. uh, Let's like mention Lincoln. It's like every time you say something, Francis, I got five more questions based on another interesting point you made. But talk a little bit about Lincoln. You know, many people see him as this great emancipator. Other people see him as this shrewd politician. What conclusion do you draw? Well, a uh, shrewd politician, uh, you know, I'd... I don't think, you know, he was always against slavery. It offended mm -hmm. it. He, you know, and, and I'm he, glad you mentioned that. Even though he might have been against slavery as an institution, there's an argument that his attitude toward black people wasn't consistent with his politics. That, And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he's, it's reported that he said black folks, although freed, 
should not be voters, should not be elected to office, should not be able to intermarry with whites. If that's true, um, I think how do you reconcile his political position and his personal position, assuming that the reports are true? Well, he was, you know, he's doing what most of us do. He's going on the evidence that uh, he had from personal experience. I think that was before he met Frederick Douglass. Okay, okay. And so the potential. a lot, certainly. Go on, please. Uh, okay. But, you know, the other interesting thing that comes up in uh, Shenandoah's spy is that uh, one of Lincoln's law partners who became his personal bodyguard, Ward Hill Lamon, and Ward mm-hmm. Hill Lamon should also be credited as the founder of the state of West Virginia. He was from Martinsburg. He was a Boyd family friend. Mm-hmm. And so was a fellow named David Hunter Strother, who ended the war as a Union Brigadier General. He was a Virginian who fought for the North. So was Lamon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and Strother was, you know, who's a distant relative of my roommate, and this is how I found the story. Uh, Strother was a Union intelligence officer, so in the Shenandoah spy, he's actually working against the same thing that Bell was working for. And at some mm-hmm. point, he's trying to capture her. You know, because he understands how dangerous she is and how passionate she is and how passionate women are in the South and how they're really driving the conflict. I mean, the men are almost secondary. It's the women who really have the strong emotions about it. Okay. And, I mean, why is that? I mean, apart from the obvious explanation. Well, you know, there are all, as I said, there are all sorts of layers to this kind of thing. Uh, one of the other things is the uh, the feminist aspect. You know, mm-hmm. you certainly have to take that into account. And one of the hard truths is that a white woman uh, in Virginia at that time was a little, little better off than a black woman if she was married. You know, if if she was married to a guy, the guy had totally con- control over her life, her money, you know, yes. pretty much do anything he wanted to her. So there was a certain amount of sympathy between black women and white women that never came, you know, bubbling to the surface. But you you see little commentaries there. And, you know, the women are more perceptive than the men. The men are going around, they're having marching societies, they're gearing themselves up for this grand adventure called a war. They have no mm-hmm. idea what a war is, or they wouldn't be so eager. And they're importing yeah. professional officers like uh, Daniel Kiley and Miles Kehoe and another fellow that I have in there who's just one of the great, really bizarre characters in history, Sir Percy Wyndham, mm-hmm. uh, who was a British officer who was... Uh, an Italian knight because he had been an Italian brigade commander under Garibaldi during the Italian War. And he was the commanding officer of the 1st New Jersey Cavalry. And he was I have... No, please go on. I have some questions, but go on. I want you to finish your point. Well, well. anyway, Percy Wyndham had a personal animus for uh, Turner Ashby, and he tried to capture Ashby, right? Mm-hmm. And Ashby captured him. He thought Ashby was this horse farmer, wasn't a professional mm-hmm. military officer, wasn't a nobleman, had not been to the manor born, and he, this guy will be easy to take. Ashby trapped him and captured him. It was the same day Ashby got killed in combat, but uh, before mm-hmm. that, uh, Percy Wyndham got a lesson in uh, why you don't underestimate gorillas. Great point. Those of you who are just tuned in, unfortunately, you've been missing a great presentation, a great lecture by author 
Francis Hammett. The show you're listening to now is the gist of the gist of freedom, normally hosted by Leslie Gist. She has me, yours truly, Attorney Michael Cord. Uh, doing this interview with Francis Hammett, I would encourage everybody listening to immediately go out and get uh, the Queen of Washington and the Shenandoah Spy great books. And, you know, I'm inclined, based on what I'm hearing from you, Francis, to call these history books, even though I understand that they're fictional. Let me ask you, I mean, to the extent that you did incorporate the fiction, what was your reason for that? I mean, with all the stuff you're sharing with this audience now, it could have been clearly nonfiction, based on all the stuff you're sharing with yeah, us, all the yeah, research but, you were able to accumulate. Yeah, Why did you decide to go the fiction yeah, route Mike, as opposed Michael, to the nonfiction this, this, route? Michael, this question comes up a lot. Uh, the short answer is I hate footnotes. <laughs> If you don't answer, you have to do that, And that just shows such honesty on your part. I mean, you cut right to the core. I can certainly appreciate that. Um, okay, well, well, that, well, well the other answer give is... you a little more freedom and poetic license to do it this way? Well, yeah, well, that's the that's the other problem. You see, the record is incomplete. It's very incomplete. Okay. Well, yeah, okay. There's no way to know, you know... Uh, the, there are a number of compromised sources for this kind of thing. You can have letters, you can have diaries... Diaries are the most reliable. Letters are the second most reliable. Newspaper accounts are about worthless because they always okay. belong to some political faction. I mean, if one uh, one reporter, William Clark, described Bell as an accomplished prostitute in print, <laughs> okay. and she couldn't sue him because the courts weren't open. Uh, wow. And this got all over the country, north and south, and you know he was trying to ruin her reputation because she had spurned his advances. Mm-hmm. You know, the... You you read her book and you read his stuff and you say, well, you know, this is guy, just a guy getting even, uh, you know. And where did he get this, you know, this uh, impression? Well, Bell was, you know, at that point, 18 years old, and she was involved with uh, a union officer. Or at least she wasn't involved with more than one at a time. But uh, mm-hmm. she was, she was, shall we say, a serial kisser. And back then. Uh, kissing was a, a much bigger deal than it is today. Serial kissing, I like that. Yes, go yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, back then, back then, uh, ser- uh, kissing was was oral sex. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, these days, it's you know, yeah. Who cares? Uh, interesting. <laughs> quite interesting. We have about six minutes left, friends, and I got to tell you, I'm really impressed with your vast knowledge of this stuff. I certainly like to have you on again. Uh, obviously, you're on with us. Um, Leslie gives the just a freedom programming. I actually do my own radio show in Philadelphia, uh, here in the city and county of Philadelphia. And at some point, I'd like to have you on my show if I can steal you away from Leslie. But before we wrap things up, I guess what I want to ask you is this: When we talk about uh, Belle Boyd and Rose Greenow and Mary Elizabeth Bowser, uh, if we had to briefly talk about the legacy of each one. Uh, if somebody who's listening to the show never heard anything about e- any one of these three women and you had to spend 30 seconds, 60 seconds on each of them, what would you say about each of them individually? They were all very brave. I mean, mm. it, 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 to do this kind of work uh, is an incredible act of courage, and it has to be based on belief. I mean, there are people who who do it on a contract basis who do it for the money, but that's more an artifact of the 20th uh, century and, and our current situation. Usually spies buy either out of patriotism or for ego, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because they think they're smarter than everybody else and they'll never get caught. And uh, sometimes they're right. Uh, you know, a case in point is uh, 
Uh, what was that fellow's name? He was Benjamin Franklin's secretary. Um, Bancroft. Dr. Mm-hmm. Bancroft. He was, uh, it turned out that about 100 years later that they discovered a pension record for him in the British National Archives. He was on on the British payroll the whole time. He was uh, taking down these confidential communications between the revolutionaries, uh, you know, in the negotiation to, uh, you know, allow America to go its own way and all of that. Yeah, and and he retired in England. He didn't. He never went back to the United States. That's also indicative. But basically, he was paid off. Uh, No doubt. No doubt. So, So so there there's a guy who you know betrayed his country for money. At mm-hmm. the same time, you have Bell, who never thought about getting paid and has suffered considerable damage to her reputation, and ended up becoming an actress, which, you know, basically at the time was viewed as being a form of prostitution. Respectable yeah. people respectable people didn't do it, and, you, you know, things like this. But uh, And she was a moderately successful actress until she remarried a Brit, a Brit who had been a union officer named John Hammond, they had some children. Uh, he used to beat on her, so she divorced him and married a much younger man named Nathaniel High. And Nathaniel High was a theatrical impresario and took her on tour with the Grand Army of the Republic uh, doing a thing called The Adventures of a Spy, which was a combination act, uh, lecture, and dramatic performance about how she ran across the battlefield under fire at the Battle of Front Royal. That actually happened, by the way. There are two eyewitness accounts. And uh, all of this other stuff, and she was on tour when she died. She's buried mm-hmm. in she's buried in Wisconsin Dells. Mm-hmm. Uh, she died, you know, uh, in 1900 on June 10th. So that anniversary is coming up. I got to thank you, Francis. Uh, Francis Hammett, uh, impressive author, and from my standpoint, a knowledgeable historian, author of The Queen of Washington, and also. The Shenandoah Spy. If those of you out there who are like me, you're going to go out to Amazon.com immediately and get this. Uh, France, the folks want to try to reach you. Is there an email address, a website, Facebook? How can folks get in touch with you directly? Uh, I've got a Facebook page both personally and for each of the books, including the new one, which is not a civil war at all. It's uh, called Meltdown, and it's a thriller. It's a heartwarming, sentimental old fable about a terrorist attack on a nuclear power plant. I used to be in the security business. It's uh, deliberately distorted to avoid giving anybody any real information about how you might do that, by the way. And let me uh, say this, Vince. I'm glad you mentioned that because in doing research about you, I found out that you were a member of the U.S. Army Security Agency in Vietnam. So I said, hey, this guy might know some stuff that... He could tell me, but he'd have to kill me after telling me, so I don't know if I want to uh, ask him those kind uh, Mike, of questions. Ma- Michael, I hate that dumb joke. I was basically a clerk, okay? <laughs> uh, my, my last job uh, for Army Security Agency was basically being their public relations guy in Germany. Okay, okay. So uh, no James Bond stuff going on? Um, I, I don't think so. I, yeah, I no. mean, I mean, I wore a uniform every day. It's a little hard to be covert when you're doing that. <laughs> excellent point, excellent point. i got to tell you, Francis, I'm really impressed with you and your work. And uh, even though we're doing this now on the Gist of Freedom, normally hosted by my good friend Leslie Gist, I know she would not have a problem with me stealing you away and having you on my radio show so we can spend an hour or two talking about this very 
a dissimilar type of subject. Uh, also, uh, I'm going to look into this book. Well, Mike, Michael, I, I, so. I'd be delighted. I'm always interested in acquiring new readers and new audience. By the way, uh, if people don't, if there are people who hate Amazon, you can also order my books uh, through uh, your local bookstore, you know, at least the ones in print. We have worldwide distribution through a distributor in New Hampshire. Uh, yeah, well, I got to tell you, I mean, people who get this book because it's written the way it is, it's fictional but fact fact based. Not only would it be educational, but also entertaining just as well. So I hope they join me in getting the Queen yeah. of Washington, the Shenandoah Spy, and the one you just mentioned, Meltdown. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, Francis, it's an honor. Yeah, each each of those has its own Facebook page. Great, absolutely wonderful. I'll be checking it out tonight while preparing for my trial tomorrow. That's why I have to wrap things up now. But I want to thank you, sir. You were a great guest, and I look forward to interviewing you again. Well, thank you. You, uh, I've done this before, and this was a very pleasant experience. Thank, thank you, you very sir. much. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful evening. You too. All okay. right. Goodbye. No weapon formed against me Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.